This is 2023. Clapping is okay. Well, turn if you would. We're in John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Let me get... uh, Sorry, forgot my technology. John chapter 8 is we're continuing through our chronological, as best we can, walk through the Gospels. This is where we find ourselves today. John chapter 8. Our series, No Ordinary Man. If you received one of these bulletins, uh, which is our intention, but every once in a while somebody slips through the cracks, if you received one, you open the inside. I'm sorry, that's for Wednesday. You open the inside, and there is a fill-in-the-blank outline, so you can take notes this morning. And is actually, I'd be more than happy to do this for you. I, I punch holes in mine and keep them in a notebook. I, I want to keep track, and of course, you know, I'm preaching them, so I get it a little more intentionality on my end there. But if you wanted to be organized about it and get a little half-page notebook, you can keep these right in there, and you could actually put your Wednesday night discussion uh, lessons on there as well and just stick them right inside there. That's what I do. I want to I remember what God showed to me. I want to do that, and it's a, it's a great practice to incorporate in your life. Uh, John chapter 8. I did not get a chance this morning with everything going on to recognize those of you who would be visiting. I know there's a couple visiting faces with us. I apologize. I would love to touch base with you after the service, but if you would take a connection card, which is right in front of you there, and fill it out as much of it as you're comfortable with, and at the end of the service, we're going to invite you to just go right back through the double doors there and to our guest table, and we'd love to give you a gift we are getting ready to transition. Actually, I've been purchasing some new guest gifts in there. You didn't quite make it there. So come back again for the first time in a couple weeks, and we'll have new guest gifts. And uh, we'd love to <laughs> let you partake in those as well. But we're so thankful you're here with us. And uh, we want to know you. And more than that, we want you to know what the Lord is doing here. Because each of us needs what is happening here. And Eastside, hopefully, is not the only place this is happening today. But we know it's happening today. We know he's here. And we want to honor him, everything that goes on here. Um, there's no showboating allowed. We are just here to glorify him. And uh, that's a wonderful thing. Thank you for being a part of it today. In John chapter 8, I've entitled the message, I am the light of the world. I couldn't think of really a catchy title. And sometimes I think it's just best just to go with what the Lord says. And this is the second of his I am statements going through the Gospels. He called himself this, I am the light of the world. Now, I'd like you, if you're in John chapter 8, I would like you to put your finger right there on John chapter 8, verse 12. Would you do that? Just take your finger, put it right on John chapter 8, verse 12 in the Bible, and you're going to know in a second why you're doing that. John chapter 8, verse 12. As we talk about Jesus' self title, one of seven in the New Testament, I am the light of the world. I looked up the definition of blindness. And on a Sunday morning, this is the best we can get. We can turn those all the way down. Blindness is a state or a condition of being unable to see because of injury, disease, or even some kind of congenital condition. But it's also a lack of perception, awareness, or judgment, ignorance even. This is the definition of blindness from Google. Google's always right. (laughs) 
There's not a single person, whether sitting in this, in this auditorium right now or watching even online, there's not a single one of us that would desire to be blind. I know that for 100% certainty. Especially if you had sight before you became blind and you know what it was like to see, to actually see. The ability to physically see, it changes everything. It changes the whole experience of life for us. It's such a powerful sense that God gave us. It flavors life in so many ways. It's, it's wonderful um, to have this sense as God's created image bearers, bearers, the ability to see what is around us. Without the ability to see, a person remains in darkness, blind. The ability to spiritually see, although many times we don't think about this and it's not as high on our priority list, it can totally alter how we view our God. It can totally alter how willing we are to trust someone that we've never seen before, which we in this room would call faith, and God would call it that as well. Paul tells the Corinthian church uh, about this. In 1 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, he says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. In whom the God of this world, Satan, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Without the light of the gospel, you and I and the rest of the world would and will remain in darkness, blind. So was the state of this world when Jesus came into it. When Jesus came down, God in the flesh, and came into this world, it was very, very dark. Join me in John chapter 8, verse 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we are here. We're worshiping. We have laid ourselves humbly at your feet, Lord. There is no better place for us to be. It's a place of trust, a place of dependence, a place of focus. Lord, we're not thinking about what happened this week or what we're struggling with about what may happen today or tomorrow. Lord, today it's just you and us. Lord, you've opened a window, a window of time you've shown us in your word when you step down onto this earth in the form of a man. And although we cannot imagine how humbling that was for you to put on our flesh and to dwell with us for 33 years, Lord, today we rejoice in the ability to glimpse you, the light of the world. Lord, as a child of God, I recognize the light and the life that you have put within me, no merit of my own, unworthy as I was. You came to me and offered wonderful salvation and deliverance from my sin. Lord, this morning, I pray somebody listening to this message would hear your word, and today would be the day they would fall at your feet. Today would be the day they would lay down their ways, would lay down their desires and their dreams in full trust in our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, you took our sin, 
You carried it to that cross. You were crucified and our sin along with you. And Lord, we thank you today that by faith we can accept that gift. Lord, help us to let go of our sin today. Help us to repent. Lord, we love you. So grateful for this opportunity to see you for who you are. In your name I ask, amen. So John chapter eight, we are gonna go through the next 18 or so verses this morning as we look at another segment uh, in God's walk here on this earth as he humbled himself in the form of a man. You know, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He said that, not, not us. This wasn't a gospel writer's titling him this. Jesus said this about himself. That's the second of the statements out of seven. We're not going to run through all seven today. The first was a few months ago. It was, I am the bread of life. Okay, and God, he used a current illustration at that time to teach his men that he was the bread of life. He was the one that they needed to depend on, and he was able to be depended on. But today we're talking about the concept of light. It's something we are familiar with. I don't know that we have anybody in here that's blind, maybe some that struggle a little bit with vision as we're getting older in life or these broken down uh, bodies living in a sinful world struggle with that sense from time to time. But we often relate light with life and darkness with death, do we not? Life and light get equated together and then darkness and death. And we don't normally, if we're thinking clear, we don't normally mix those. That's, that's absolutely why one of the reasons media and TV can be so dangerous because, I don't know if you've noticed this, especially in children's programming, they're taking things that are dark and they're trying to make them look like they're light, like they're good. Like there can be good sorcerers. There can be good demons. They just got put in the wrong skin. They just got the wrong job. But they're really good. There's something happening. I pray we're, we're opening our eyes. But God doesn't mix the two. Light and life, darkness and death. Think about light for a minute. I want, let's separate the two of them and just kind of get in our minds what, as we're setting this framework to allow the Lord to show us in this illustration that he's using, he used current day illustrations. We'll talk about that in a minute. So let's do that ourselves. Let's, let's use a current day illustration. Light, we've all seen it. What does light do? Light, light creates an environment that is automatically more pleasant than when it was dark, is it not? I mean, there's a, there's a time every once in a while in the perfect situation where we, we like a little bit of mood with the lights down, etc. But you wouldn't want to live that way. Light creates a wonderful experience for a human being. Heaven is a place of light. Light reveals things that are hidden. I mean, think of flashlights, spotlights. I mean, what are the purpose in all of those? It's to reveal a dark place for us. We want to know what's in that place. We want those hidden things revealed. Light re-energizes us. It promotes healing. Think of, um, you know, solar power. There, there is, to my knowledge, there is nobody that has harnessed dark power. That's like something in a cartoon. And although there is, God has chained that power, and it's only allowed out to a certain extent and for a certain amount of time, and that time will soon come to an end, I hope in my lifetime. Light re-energizes us. It promotes healing. Ever heard of light therapy? It dispels darkness. Think of this. Darkness is the absence of light. It's not the other way around. Light is not the absence of darkness. 
As long as light is present, darkness cannot muffle that light. However, it doesn't matter how dark it is, the second light is introduced, darkness dispels. Light hinders the spread of sin. We remember what Jesus said several times in the Gospels. Why do men love darkness? Because their deeds are evil. Evil and darkness, they like each other, they're companions. So let's switch that over. Let's think about darkness. Darkness can turn a person with great eyesight into someone that cannot see what's going on very well at all. Sometimes almost nothing, depending on what part of the country you live in, right? I mean, we were just out looking at a house um, that, uh, I was going to call you Porter, sorry, Parker. <laughs> Parker and Madeline are, are thinking about uh, moving into in the, in the future here. And it's out in the country. And boy, nighttime comes out in the country, no streetlights. And what is it? It is, if the moon's not out, it is black. I mean, it is dark, right? Turns a person with great eyesight into a blind person. Just darkness. It's a breeding ground for sin, evil, spiritual darkness, lowered accountability. All sorts of things happen in the night. It's a place for evil to hide. Crime, secret sins, mystery. Long periods of darkness, they can be depressing and discouraging. It hasn't been too long. I grew up in the Northwest. I lived right, right uh, well, a, a nation south of Alaska, even though Alaska is still in the United States. It's way up there. But I worked there for a summer. Summer was fine. It was, it was light almost all day long, those two months that I was up there. But the statistics are true. I've heard from the mouth of actual Eskimos living in Alaska. The suicide rate is very high in Alaska because during the winter there are several months, even a few weeks, where there is nothing but darkness because of how high up they are in the rotation of the earth. It's depressing. It can be discouraging. It affects the atmosphere. And it hinders our abilities. Certain things just can't be done well in the dark. It's a, I recently did, um, encountered this doing some carpentry, and I was doing it at nighttime. So I had to set up lights. I had to had set a certain path to do things in a certain room and in a certain way because it was dark outside. And it doesn't matter how good you are, how many times you've been along it, your abilities are always hindered and hampered when things are dark. So we've created all sorts of tools to try and overcome that. We spend all sorts of money, and, and it can work to a, to a point, but it'll never be as good as the sunlight. Never. The light that God created is just a wonderful, wonderful thing, and there's no mystery at all why Jesus used this to illustrate one aspect of his godhood. If we look at the context of where we're at, we find ourselves in the temple treasure. We know that halfway through our text. We'll read that in a minute. I'm not going to read that yet for you, but that's where we are. We're in the temple. We're in the temple treasury. Um, it's still during the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, we've been talking about this a little bit. It's a week-long feast. Jesus is still drawing a crowd, still teaching truth to the people. And we know from last week, uh, or sorry, before the family weekend, we were in the, the first 11 verses, and it was talking about the woman taken in adultery, right? Well, this, this passage is a little uncertain in its timing and place. Honestly, it doesn't really fit right there, it seems. Um, that may be because it actually happened at a different time. We don't know exactly. That's part of the challenge of interpreting Scripture and looking at different gospel accounts. Luke is the only one that specifically says everything he wrote was in chronological order. Okay, so it may be that. We don't really know. 
But today's passage fits right in. It's almost as if seamlessly they come and are laying out, Jesus is laying out, the gospel writer John is laying out what happened during that feast, and this is one of those things. Jesus is teaching in the temple treasury. This is the Feast of Tabernacles as a reminder, the Feast of Booths, some would call it in more modern language, but it was in the month of Tishri, or about October. Remember, it's 13 Jewish months because it's a lunar calendar. It's not like our calendar. And it was lasted for eight days. So between, starts on the Sabbath, ends on the Sabbath, between, those days between, would be a feast, would be a celebration that Jews were required to come to. Every male was legally required to come every year. On the first day, they would take actual branches from palm trees, willow trees. There's some other luxury trees in the area, and they would rejoice. Nehemiah 8 tells us a little bit about that. You can study more about the feast that Nehemiah shows. It's, it's been going for years and years and still goes today. During that feast, there's several different events that were symbolizing the time that God led the Jews through the wilderness, and he made them to dwell in booths. We would probably call them tents like structures, but for a Bedouin, uh, the tent was their house. And he led them through the wilderness, and they lived in booths. This was a reminder. God had many reminders for his people. They're important. God puts them in our lives. Many symbols and rituals went on during that week. One of them was the water libation service. They'd pour water over the altar, and Jesus, of course, used this in John chapter 7 when he was talking about living water that would come out of a believer. The second illustration Jesus seemed to take advantage of is our text this morning. And I believe as he's in the temple treasury teaching, he is actually pulling from something that's happening right then. I'll show you why. He's in the treasury, and of course, this is not Solomon's temple. This is Herod's temple. Solomon's temple was destroyed when Babylon took the Jews captive, but Herod rebuilt it, and he rebuilt it bigger and better, he said. I'm going to do it greater because I'm Herod and I can and, of course, we know God's way was best. But here is a, this is not a picture. Nobody was back there taking photos. Okay, this is a reproduction. I believe it's in Jerusalem, of Jerusalem and, the, and Herod's temple. In the center of Herod's temple is the actual replica of the temple, Solomon's temple. And that's that tall building in the center is the Holy of Holies. But that white arrow is pointing to the temple treasury or the court of women. This was the last place in the temple that the women were allowed to go. The next door went were the priests, and only, only men were priests. Okay, the priests would go into the next section. So this was really the last place in the temple that everybody could be in. And in this place, it's very interesting, they set up these gigantic candelabras. You see them left and right there. Again, this is a drawing. Somebody did the research historically and reproduced what they feel it looked like gigantic candelabras. They would have a ladder to light them on the top. And uh, it's said in Hebrew tradition that they would stay up all night and celebrate this, um, the light that led Israel through the desert, the pillar of fire by day and that bright and shining cloud. I'm sorry, pillar of fire by night and the bright and shining cloud by day that would lead them through. And this was another symbol uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles that they were drawing to. I don't believe it's any mistake whatsoever that Jesus Christ draws from that and says, I am the light of the world. I, that that pillar of fire, that that bright and shining cloud in the wilderness, that was me. And here I am. I am the light of the world. 
He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He was a master. He was always thinking of the things of God. He was God. He's our pattern and a challenge to follow, is he not? First point we see there as Jesus is teaching is in verse number 12, a promise is given. Promise is given here in verse 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Well, this is interesting you say. I don't hear him say, I promise anything right there. Well, that's because only human beings need to say that. Because we know we're all liars. So we tell people when we're promising something. We shake on it. Or I swear on a stack of Bibles. I swear on my mama's grave. To anything to convince people that we're not lying. Jesus didn't need to do that. He never did it. Not even once. He wasn't a liar. There was no truth. Uh, nothing but truth that ever came out of his mouth, his mind, and his heart. So anything Jesus said, anything God says, is absolute truth and thereby cannot be a lie and thereby is a promise, as we would say. Jesus is teaching them here that anyone who would stay close to him, would follow him, would not walk in darkness, but would have their lives lit up. I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you can have the light of life. Little Jesus, the light of the world, telling his followers here who he is and what they will have if they actually truly follow him. And it's a promise because why? God said it. God said it. We see God's promises are always true because God cannot lie. See that word there, then spake Jesus, so we know it's true. That's all he had to do. He just had to speak, and we know it's true. This is our God of truth. Titus reinforces this. In hope of eternal life, he says, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Titus had to tell us it was a promise. God didn't have to. Because Titus is a liar just like us. You know, human beings, we sometimes feel the need to emphasize that. But God does not. God does not. I was thinking of the fact that many things that you and I have to kind of re-say and reiterate in the scriptures, God just, um, I'm going to say assumes, but that's not even the right word, that things are true. You know, God never tries to prove that he exists in the Bible. Think about that. God does not try to prove to you in his word that he exists. It's an assumption, and it would be a foolish one not to believe that, right? Uh, the Bible would absolutely make no sense to you if you didn't believe God existed. Thereby, we have many atheists that have Scripture memorized and are as far from God as anybody ever was. You have to believe that God exists to get anything out of his word. And how could we not? But yet, there are some, many, Letter B, God's promises are always true because God cannot be stopped. Think about this. He says, I am the light of the world. I am. Jesus repeats this later in the chapter as well. We talk about, uh, we'll talk about more in the next coming weeks, but in uh, verse 58, uh, I'll put on the slide behind me. Jesus saith unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. What is that? That's, that's, uh, I believe that's what's called a tetragrammaton, I think. Is that, that sounds like a really technical word, right? Sounds cool anyways. And it's, it's Jesus is echoing Exodus 3.14. I am that I am has sent me. The self-existent one. The one that always was, 
always is, always will be, depends on absolutely no one or no thing for any of his power, any of his existence. He is not limited by anything. You and I might make a promise that was a lie, but we didn't intend it. You know, you, you with your best efforts said, I am going to, you're going to tell your son or your daughter, I am going to do this. You tell somebody at church, I'm going to be there. You can count on me. You tell your boss, I'm going to get this done for you. And with the best intentions, you set out to do that. But something stopped you. Might have been health. I mean, in tragic cases, could have been death. Could have been a car accident. Could have... It uh, could have been another person stepped into your life and prevented you. And we all get it. There's priorities. Sometimes we let weak things stop us from doing things. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking there's legitimate times where you want to do something and you are unable to do it. Not so with God. Ever. There is never anything he says he's going to do that he is unable to do at any point in time. There is never anyone that will come up against God that is somehow able to stop him from doing what he wants to do, specifically in our context, what he says he is going to do. And God here is speaking. And there is nothing, no one, that can stop him. They try to take him again a little bit later in the passage this morning. They're unable to. Why? Because God said so. It's not time yet. I'll let you take them when it's time. Just back off, Jack. <laughs> right now. God's promises are always true because God cannot be stopped. He says there, he that followeth me will have the light of life. This is a promise because God said it. In Luke chapter 1, verse 78, on the screen behind me, Luke says, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, this is Jesus, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. He's telling a story of what is happening as God in the flesh has landed on this earth that he created. And he calls him the day spring. I love this. I think this is a King James only word, actually, but I love the picture here. The word day spring here is anatole, means the rising of the sun. It's also translated east because that's the only place the sun rises is in the east. Interesting, when you're studying these language, the biblical languages God used to write his word. The day spring, through the tender mercy of our God, the day spring from on high hath visited us. The sun has now risen. Jesus is here. He's here. He's the light. And it was all because of God's tender mercy to us. Had it not been for the day spring, the rising of the sun, the light of life, Jesus, the Messiah, stepping onto this earth, we would and still would be remaining in darkness. He came and gave light. Gave light. Jesus. Second thing we see is a promise given by the source of light. Sorry, source of truth. A promise is given by the source of truth, source of truth, source of light, same person, but truth for our outline this morning. A promise is given by the source of truth. Let's continue in verse number 13 of chapter 8. The story continues, and we're going to go through a section of verses here, and I want to paint a picture. God paints a picture for us. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, so Jesus just said, I'm the light of the world. If any man follow me, he'll have the light of life. 
He won't walk in darkness. He'll have the light of life. Pharisees always have something to say in their despicableness, in their rebellion and stubbornness. Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself. That record is not true. Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For I know whence I came and whither I go, but ye cannot tell whence I come and whither I go. The Pharisees here are arguing with Jesus, the author and source of truth. You're saying this about yourself, but how can we trust that? What you're saying cannot be true. It is not true. Jesus repeats, you know what? It is true. I'm saying it, and that's what makes it true. You know, maybe even alluding to the fact that in a world of liars, I would understand why you didn't think you could believe what I'm saying, but I came from God, and there's no reason to doubt my words or my actions. But here's the problem. You don't know me. You don't know my words. You don't know where I came from. You don't know who I am. He says there, I quote, but you cannot tell whence I came and whither I go. You know, we just had the last argument in, in John chapter 7, right, where um, Nicodemus stood up and said, do we judge this man before we, we hear? You know, he's brought before the, the, the Pharisees again. Do we judge this man before we hear what's hesitant? And they're saying, what, are you from Galilee? Do you know this guy? Haven't you read the scriptures? Of course, I mean, they're being sarcastic. Have you read the scriptures? No prophet comes from Galilee. Which if they had really wanted to know, they could have checked the temple records. We remember in, I think it was John chapter 1, where Joseph and Mary, Jesus was now eight days after his birth, uh, the time of, um, that it would take, that, that would last, that the women had to um, go through that period and wait before they could come to the temple. All of that had passed. Joseph and Mary just a few weeks after Jesus was born, brought him to the temple and met who? Simon and Anna the prophetess. And right there in the temple records would be recorded that this child was born in Bethlehem. Not just that, but that Mary and Joseph were both of the lineage of David. All of that would have been recorded, and that was the prophecy. The Pharisees, we don't even know where you're from. And Jesus says, yeah, you don't know where I'm from, but you could if you really wanted to. And that was the case with the Pharisees. They didn't want to. They never wanted to. Eventually, he just stopped speaking to them because they did not want to hear what he had to say. And that is the destitute and damning nature of blindness and the worst kind of blindness, the blindness that will not see. Not the blindness that cannot see, but the blindness that refuses to see. He says in verse 15, chapter 8, You judge after the flesh, I judge no man. And yet if I judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I and the Father that sent me. It's also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true, and I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me bears witness of me. Was he saying that you judge after the flesh? Jesus says you judge according to what you see on the surface. He said, I don't judge like that. But if I did, my judgment would still be true because I know what's inside of you. He says it's written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. So try this one on for size. Let's just go according to your law, Mosaic law even. That was, uh, I think it was in Deuteronomy 
Oh yeah, the next slide actually. Deuteronomy 19.15. This was written for the Jews and they took this very seriously even if they didn't apply it all the time. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin in any sin that he sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. We hear that all through the New Testament repeated over and over again. He says, okay, so here you go. According to your law, if there's two witnesses, a matter can be established. So here's my two witnesses, me, because I don't lie, to my father. And they're like, what? Listen to what they say here in the next verse. Then said they unto him, where's thy father? You know, they're looking around. They just can't, they just can't see anything. Uh, what, what a, just a sad place to be in. The author of truth standing right in front of you telling you what is true and you can't see it. I don't know, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe this all sounds just ridiculous to you. You came with a loved one, you came, because maybe you have legitimate questions in your heart, I mean, how could you not? But you just can't see it. Can I tell you the reason you can't see it? Because the light of life is not inside of you. The Bible says that if we'll become saved, if we'll turn from our sins, repent of our sins, and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he will come into our lives, indwell us. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, comes in, dwells inside of us. And that same light that Jesus is promising to these disciples and these people right here in the temple treasury will enlighten your life, will reveal things to you you never thought were possible. And I'm not talking about miraculous things, okay? Things that nobody else has ever heard of. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about things about God that you've never known before. They're right here. You've stared at the page before and it meant nothing to you. But God wants you to know him. And as weird and as audacious as it may sound, Jesus wanted these men to know him as well. But they refused. Verse 20 says, These words spake Jesus in the treasury, which we knew, as he taught in the temple, and no man lays hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. He's just continuing on God's timetable. God knows what's going on. God has set the path. Jesus is following it. Nothing is going to upset that path that God set him on. Here we see point number three in our last point. A promise given by the source of truth by very nature has eternal consequences. I want you to think about what real truth is. Real truth never changes. It doesn't matter how old it is. Okay, there is no such thing as you cannot look at truth, ancient truth, we might call it, or old truth as somehow being an antique because it never goes out of style. It never becomes irrelevant. It is applicable in any culture, any language, any time, any situation. That's truth. It is always true. It cannot be your truth and my truth. It cannot be the truth of a Russian and the truth of an American and they both be equal even though they oppose it cannot be the truth of a boy and the truth of a girl uh, in an American school. It cannot be that. It is one truth applied to everybody. And a promise given by the source of truth, Jesus Christ, now has eternal consequences because it does not matter how long it goes. It will never cease to be true. He promises that there will be consequences if you refuse to believe. He promises this. 
Verse 21, let's continue on. Then said Jesus again unto them, again, he says it, I go my way, and you shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, you cannot come. Then said the Jews, will he kill himself? Because he said, whither I go, you cannot come. And he, Jesus, said unto them, you are from beneath, I'm from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. We see some promises here. First promise we see is that Jesus would be going home. He's telling them here, and he repeats this several times throughout the gospel of what was coming in the future, the crucifixion, the resurrection, his home going to heaven. Here he's talking about the fact that he will be going home, and we see this several times in the gospels. Because Jesus said it, it's a promise. It's going to happen. He speaks to these unbelievers about the afterlife. I go my way. And they didn't understand what he was talking about. I mean, their response was not, Lord, would you take me with you? like the thief on the cross did, their response was, will he kill himself? A little sarcasm in there maybe, a little, little condescension maybe. How is it that we're not going where he is going? That's ridiculous. They didn't understand. But bigger than that, they would not understand. In Acts 1, we see that this actually physically did happen. History of the Apostles, Acts chapter 1, you can study it. After the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus physically left this world, is what he was talking about. And he sat down, as Hebrews tells us, on the right hand of God. He says in Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, every priest standing daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. By the way, that's exactly what's happening right now in this culture, not America, right here in our text. This Jewish culture, this is exactly what's happening. Priests are daily and regularly offering sacrifices, the sacrifices that can never truly take away sin, only cover them. Verse 12, but this man, talking about Jesus, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Jesus is referring to this time. He ascended into heaven, he sits down at the right hand of God, signifying it is finished, it's done, it's complete, it's salvation. What I came to do is done. And the captain of our salvation rose in victory, offered grace and mercy to every sinner on the planet that would live from that time forward, absolutely. And it does not matter how much time goes from that time. It will never cease to be relevant for us. Never. It's a promise. Jesus would be going back home, and he did be going back home. But he goes on. He says, letter B, there's another promise that unbelievers cannot go where Jesus is going. Not only am I going to go home, but you can't go there. He's talking to these men. Who are these men? These are the ones who would not believe. See, there's, there's never a truth that Jesus presents that is unbelievable. There are just people who will not believe. These men are in that group, unfortunately for them. Why is that? Why cannot we go where Jesus is going? Uh, our sin, our sin separates us, prevents us 
The darkness that is we are born with prevents us from being in that place where Jesus ascended 2,000 years ago, sat down at the right hand of God, eternity with Christ. They could not go there either. They were unbelievers. And as a result, Jesus said they would die in their sins. And that's a serious place to be. Who is he talking about? Who would die in their sins? He he talks about it again. He says, just in case you're wondering, I'm saying those who do not believe that I am he will die in their sins. At this point in history, this is a little theology here, and uh, there's a lot of debate goes on about this. But at this point in history, these people could not believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. He hadn't done it yet. We have a whole history of Old Testament history from the very beginning, and we don't know exactly when it started, but it's definitely written in the Mosaic Law of the sacrifices and the times of atoning for the sins and an entire tribe of Israel set apart to be, uh, if you would, professionals, to, to be the priests, to be the singers of the worship of God and the sacrifice of spotless animals to atone for the sins of mankind. And they would have to do this regularly, looking forward to the Messiah, to the Lamb of God that would lay down. John even gave testimony to this. It's always been about faith in Jesus, even before they knew who Jesus was. John chapter 1, John was the forerunner. Of course, he introduced Jesus as he stepped on this planet. In John 1, 29, on the screen behind me, the next day John sees Jesus coming unto him and says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Well, Jesus hadn't done it yet. God had raised up John to introduce Jesus to this world. It's always been faith in Jesus. For those Old Testament saints, it was faith toward what was coming, who was coming. For us, it's looking back. Faith in the one, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who did lay down his life, who did once and for all offer sinless atonement, as the book of Hebrews just told us in many, 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 many verses in the New Testament. Verse John, John reiterates it again in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. And ye know that he, that's Jesus, was manifested. He, he appeared. He was visible. Jesus was manifested to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. And that's exactly why Jesus could go there and these Pharisees could not. Sin. Sin is the problem. Sin is the problem, and we, we cannot dumb this down, beloved. Sin is what keeps people from God. Sin is what keeps people out of heaven. And because we cannot understand the fact that a sinner like you and I could go to heaven, sometimes that prevents people uh, from coming to Christ and being saved. Because we want so badly, so many of us, to think that we earned this somehow, that we were good enough somehow Somehow we reach some, so we dumb it down. Well, sinless, that's ridiculous. Nobody's sinless. And maybe they thought the same thing. They had this whole, they had books and books and books of things they would do, even though they weren't really doing them. They were faking it. Books and books of things, libraries of things they were doing to be righteous in in the sight of everybody else, hoping that somehow this was righteous in God's eyes. And Jesus says to them, you're gonna die in your sins. You're going to die in your sins. It doesn't matter what you're doing because you do not believe in me. At that time, the Messiah. He goes on, he promises also, 
that everything he is saying here is true. Everything Jesus is saying is true, and we know that that's a universal principle, but he is telling them this. What I am telling you is true. In verse 25, he says, Then said they unto him, Who art thou? I mean, who are you? And Jesus said unto them, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true. I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he. Now they didn't know he's talking about the cross, but we do, looking back on it. That I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me, and the Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. What, what does he do here? He, he invokes the authority of the Father. And although Jesus had full authority within himself, he invokes the authority of the Father. Now, we do that, right? We'll, we'll tell other people sometimes if we're afraid that someone, and this is not fear in Jesus, but for us to relate to it, if we really want to add weight to what we're saying, what will we do? We'll add the word of somebody else on top of it. You can remember, I'm sure, the time, if you had brothers and sisters, where you told them to do something, and they said, we're not doing that. So what did you do? You went back and talked to mom or dad. <laughs> and mom said, you tell them. <laughs> or dad said, you tell them dad said to do this. Well, what, the, what does that mean? Because dad's word had some weight. Jesus is, is doing that. Humans understand that kind of talk. So Jesus because he is so merciful and so understanding to the plight of the human condition. He invokes something they would understand. He says, my father told me, to, I'm from him. He and I are doing exactly the same thing. I am doing what he wants. Everything I've said is true. He says in verse 28, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you shall know that I'm he. But even at this point in their life, they still had to have faith. Still had to have faith. And even though Jesus was right there in the flesh in front of them, they wouldn't believe. They wouldn't believe. He says in verse 30, as he, as he spake these words, many believed on him. What a sad situation for these men to be sitting here in a group a group of many people that were believing what Jesus said and them to stand there in their pride and their arrogance as the ones that really know what's going on, supposedly, and they're going to die in their sins. They're going to reject the day spring, the sunrise that was right in front of them. What a sad commentary. And I'd like you to consider this morning as... We bow our heads and close our eyes. I want to give you, there is a time of invitation, we're going to call it this morning, a time for you to consider these things as Jesus proclaims this truth to these, to these men and women in this group. There are some there that believed, and actually many, which is a blessing for them. But there are some who would not. And Jesus even though he was very loving, very merciful, did not tell them it was going to be okay. He did not tell them that, well, maybe eventually 
They would get things figured out. He, he was not, he was not uh, cutting any corners here with them. He was not pulling any punches. He was telling them the truth. Please understand, if you do not believe in me, you will die in your sins. And he sets this example for us 2,000 years ago, even now as his followers. I would say probably, best I can with human eyes, many in this room have believed. But there's some, undoubtedly, that either will not, would not, stumble at, are hindered from, are stopping at, however you want to call it, something has stopped you from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, placing your faith in the cross, not the wood cross itself, but the God-man who hung there for you and for me. What's stopping you this morning? What, what are you hanging on to that is making your life just a religious duty. I mean, is the light of life dwelling in you? You say, I don't know. How could you not know? I'm not saying you can't ever doubt. We go through situations where we'll doubt because of our own sinfulness. But how could you not look back on your life as a saved person, supposedly, and not know whether the light of life was in you or not? Oh, we would, not, we would not want to be a receiver of that accusation, that truth. You'll die in your sins. Would you stand with me this morning, heads bowed and eyes closed? I want to give you an opportunity, and I'm just going to help you out. I'm going to make it easier for you. Everybody's standing. I would love for you just to excuse yourself from the aisle and just head right to the back. Someone will meet you, show you how you can be saved today, how you can know the light of life, how you can know Jesus, the light of the world. He is as real as he was in our text this morning. He is as real as he was 2,000 years ago. Eternal God, sufficient Savior. Would you just dismiss yourself and just walk right to the back? Just do it now. Don't wait. Don't be like these men. Don't argue. Say, I just don't understand. That's okay. Ask God. Tell God you want to believe in him. Tell God you want to believe in his son, Jesus Christ, and what he did on the cross. Maybe, maybe you're a professing Christian, but you, you know, and only you know, that there's been no real fruit in your life. Aren't, aren't, isn't it time you just drew that line in the sand? Enough is enough. I'm done playing. I want to be a follower. Would you answer the Lord today? Father, we know you've spoken just like you did 2,000 years ago, and it is, it is as real for us today as it was for those people in this group back then. Lord, would you penetrate our hearts, our thick, entertainment-driven self-absorbed hearts, would you show us, would you show us the darkness that we've allowed in there? 
Would you show us the brilliance of who you are? Would you bring sinners to yourself, Lord? Father, I don't know how you've spoken, but help us to obey this morning. Help us to respond. In your name I ask, amen.